Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So, Devin, you've been on a lot of sales teams, and you have been there firsthand. You know that there are top performers and there's like middle of the pack and there's bottom performers. And we're familiar with the stat that like, what, 80% of revenue comes from the top 20% of reps, yes. more or less. Yeah, I've, I've heard it in sales. I've heard it since then. I, it's, it gets thrown around pretty, pretty consistently. But why? Why is that happening? That I have never heard an answer to thrown around consistently. Um, <laughs> I would love to tell you that I have always been a top performer and I have no idea what's going on in the middle of the bottom of the pack. The honest answer is I started at the bottom of the pack and climbed my way up and and kind of figured it out. I can tell you that looking at the leaderboard at all of my sales jobs, there is always a small amount of people who are over 100% and there's always a large amount of people under that 100% uh, mark. Now that's that's obvious. We, we, We know this. It's usually also though the same people at the mm-hmm. top. You know what I mean? It, which is a totally different thing. It's not like it's a rotating thing. It's kind of round robin. No, it's the same people at the top. If there was a answer to solve this, like, you know, how to get the bottom performers to the middle and how to the middle to the top, whoever cracked that code would have their own consulting firm. They'd be a billion dollar company. And, uh, you know, we wouldn't be talking about it. But to be honest with you, I don't have that answer. Mm-hmm. It, it is tough. It is tough. Every company deals with it. But there are some approaches to balance the team right? so that, you know, whether it's like how you're distributing accounts, whether it's who you're providing coaching and feedback to, it's how you create, um, you know, feedback and, and training sessions and things of that nature. So there, there are a lot of interesting approaches there. And that's why I love this conversation with Dorian. Mm-hmm. He is not only charismatic and just comes off as an amazing leader, like somebody you'd want to work for, but has particular experience in this area that I found pretty compelling. Took the words from me. I got, when we got done with Dorian, I was like, I would go sell with that guy. I would go work with him for sure. For sure. I had a really good time hanging out with you and Dorian. And what was interesting for longtime listeners, you know, we always ask the same question at the end, which is how you would describe sales in one word. I will not give you the spoiler, but I'll tell you that Dorian really flexes curiosity. He was the first one to ask me and Sheena what our one word is. So stay tuned to the end. You, you get to hear that for the first time. Dorian, welcome to Reveal. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So to kick things off, could you give us a two minute overview of New Star and what you're specifically focused on? Sure. Newstar is an organization that a lot of companies and people interact with and probably just don't know it. Um, We're an information services organization that centers primarily around authoritative identity. We have four primary means by which we go to market, but they all center around being able to understand who's on the other end of a transaction. 
we have pretty unique insights around online and offline data. Um, and that's leveraged across components from cybersecurity to caller identification, 15 character name you see show up on your TV or on your handset is, is actually coming from Newstar. Um, verifying card not present transactions or originations or account takeover within the fraud and risk space, all the way through uh, optimizing digital marketing, measurement, activation, um, and targeting. Um, it all centers around a unique ability to understand that the person you're interacting with is who they say they are and being able to optimize that interaction in the moments that matter most. That's where we focus our time. Um, we, we are about a 2000 person organization. We're headquartered in Northern Virginia, which is where I'm based. We have offices around the U S and in the UK. Um, and my responsibility within the organization is I lead sales and then part of the executive committee, um, sales within new stores, inclusive of, uh, the field sales team of which there's about a hundred individual contributors, um, sales management, sales operations, sales engineering, sales development, account management and customer success. It's about a 300 person organization. Just a few things fit under your realm. That's it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. People don't know that I was already late for this call, but that's my justification as to why. <laughs> it's, it's a good reason, an understandable one for sure. Yeah. So you're, you're the EVP, you're the chief sales officer, but before that you were an All-American defensive tackle in high school, and then you went on to play football at Stanford. So I'm curious, if you had to choose one key lesson from playing sports that has contributed to your success in business, what would that be? It's an interesting question. So as I was thinking about how to position that, because I get asked that a lot, um, and what you take away from it, and given the fact that I used to weigh 290 pounds and run into people a lot, uh, I'm, I think the typical uh, expectation would be intimidating people, hurting people, uh, throwing things, getting angry. It's not even what you might think of like the competitive drive or the camaraderie. One of the biggest lessons I took away from playing sports in general and playing sports at that level at Stanford is time management. Um, because if you're not effective at managing your time with all those obligations and quite honestly, you think you know everything at age 18, but you actually know nothing. Um, and thinking back on who I was at that time and what I was prepared to manage versus what was placed upon me from a responsibility standpoint, forced me to grow up very quickly, but also forced me to understand how to effectively manage my time um, and where to spend time and, and how to allocate it and how to prioritize the things that were the most important. Now, um, in school, especially when you play a sport or if you're in the military, it's very regimented. So the majority of your day is already defined for you. But as you're trying to balance academics and athletics, um, you, you very much have to be proficient at how you balance your time. And as I think about any number of things that I've translated into the business world, uh, effective time management and prioritization is key. And I'm not that good at it because there's a lot of demands that exist. And I think anybody in a high, uh, high pressure, fast paced technology type of environment is dealing with that too. Um, but I shudder to think what I would be if not for having learned those lessons, um, in, in playing sports in college. Now there's a ton of other lessons beyond that, but that's one of the examples I think may not be, um, as straight down the middle as what others may have expected me to say. Uh, are there a couple tactical tips that you can share with the audience on what you do today for time management and being super effective around that? 
We've standardized our sales process on Franklin Covey. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that organizations leverage time management philosophically and process wise. Um, they subscribe to a four quadrant methodology and without going into all the quadrants, it's a basic two by two. Um, what is important versus what is urgent. And if you think about where you spend your time, most of the time we're spending our time on things that are urgent and not important, at least not important for us. Presumably they're important for somebody. Otherwise, why are they urgent? Right. Or you're spending time on things that are urgent and important because you know, like if your house is on fire, that, that suddenly takes pre precedent over any of the other things that you're working on. But the things that are important and not urgent are the ones that move the needle. And so we talk a lot about that's quadrant two. We talk a lot about quadrant two activities and trying to focus your time there. Um, I'd say tactically speaking, you need to be deliberate just like anything else. If your expectation is I'll just figure it out as I go during the week, that's a recipe for failure. Um, if your belief is that you'll get to it when you have a break in your schedule, it's amazing how fast those breaks get filled with what is a priority for somebody else. You have to block the time, you have to be purposeful in how you set your schedule for the week um, and prioritize what's important for you and how you wanna work on it. It's all about focusing on the big rocks. And again, it's much easier said than done, um, but tactically speaking, I think if people go in any given week and say, I will feel successful if I completed X, Y, and Z, that's where you have to start. And it doesn't mean you're gonna get there every time, but at least you have a plan for how you wanna attack the activities for that week. The other one, I, and I've learned this even more so this year, there's a difference between being busy and being productive. And I don't think people necessarily view that. Um, that's one. Two, there are times in which you're moving the ball forward and not necessarily completing a task, and it feels like you're not being productive as a result. Sometimes it's about the journey, not the, 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 the destination. Um, and if there's really important things that you're working on, it's not going to be a binary, you know, this wasn't working. Now it is, it's going to be a process and a journey to get there. So my view of how we drive more consistency in the organization, that's not an overnight activity. Um, and it stems from a much more purposeful approach to what your definition is of success and how you drive that more effectively through the organization. I love the uh, quadrant approach from Franklin Covey. I do it as well. I picked up a couple of years ago. What I found helpful is to just first start by listing everything that's on your radar and then doing yeah. that where you kind of, I bold, you know, I just bold the things that are both important and urgent. And, and like you said, Doran, what will happen is the, you know, the gravity or the pull of working in a fast paced environment or especially in a leadership position is you'll find a lot of these seemingly urgent tasks that are in fact, like you said, aren't really that important for what's going to move the needle most for you. Right. Agreed. So, we know a lot of sales orgs today, they rely on a pretty small percent of their top performers to hit the revenue targets. And I know you have some strong perspectives on this. Can you share what you think it takes to really build a much more balanced and effective team? Yeah, so we've done a lot of analysis on our top performers in the Pareto graph of the, you know, where the 80% comes from. Um, about 35 to 40% of our sales force contributes 80% of our bookings, which is extremely top heavy. Yeah. Um, and so when we talk about flattening the, the curve, not to use a pandemic related term, but getting more consistency. So it's not just super top heavy and you don't have the people at the far end of the curve who aren't contributing. You need that middle to move up. 
Um, and that's where we try and drive that consistency because if 10% of your reps in our case are 40% of our bookings, that is a dangerous place to be because you're very highly dependent on people to overachieve year after year after year. Um, versus if you get a much higher percentage of the organization to be at 80%, 90%, they don't even have to be at 100%, though obviously that's the goal and you want everybody there. That's what you're striving for, to relieve, relieve some of that pressure and dependence on the top performers. Um, and there's a lot of facets that go into it, capacity, analysis, territory planning, you know, all the go-to-market strategies, vertical alignment, segmentation, all of those components. But then there's also what, what are the core skills and fundamentals that the top performers are exhibiting um, that others can learn from as well. And we've been growing a lot as a field sales team. We entered, um, well, we entered 2019 with about 80 or so reps, and we'll enter 21 with 100. So pretty significant growth. And um, that's not, that's the, on the incremental basis, you've also got reps that leave that you're bringing new reps in, reps that take managerial positions that you need to backfill. You have a lot of new people coming to the organization, which is a good thing, but um, you need more of that consistency in how you onboard to prevent the gap from where the person was who was with the organization to the new person coming in and trying to drive more of that scale and, um, and growth, which is where our focus is. This is clearly a complex problem. And it's one that I think every sales team I've ever been a part of uh, has experienced. Doran, what are some of the you know common mistakes that you see sales leaders making when it comes to building a more balanced and effective team? The most common mistake I see, and it really depends on what level of management. Um, let's talk about frontline managers for a second. The most common sure. mistake I see is they become super reps. Um, a lot of times sales managers, myself included, were individual contributors that got promoted. And it's a fascinating um, dynamic in sales, at least of, well, you sell, so you must be good at managing. They're incredibly different skill sets. Right. Um, and so you, by extension, you're putting yourself in a position where the default behavior for the manager is if things aren't going well, or if the pressure's on, I'm just going to take over. And that actually stunts the growth that we're talking about. Um, it also prevents people from understanding, do you have a skill versus will issue? Do you have a talent issue? because you could have a rep who's performing really on the back of the, the, the manager of that individual contributor. So on a frontline manager perspective, I'd say that's the biggest mistake I see made. The other mistake I see is assume that growth is driven by capacity. More reps equals we will sell more. Like everything else in life, nothing's that simple. Um, there are many other factors that go into play there, including how you're going to market, how you're addressing the key verticals and messaging and opportunity, the addressable market in general. And are you selling profitably? Are you selling the right sort of deals into the right sort of accounts that affords the opportunity to grow those accounts and really lead to the overall growth of the business? And as an organization that has four pretty distinct ways of how we sell, it's always interesting because there's lessons learned from all of them that help the rising tide raise all, all ships. Um, but it's also very different. You've got a combination of strategic and tactical. You've got a combination of um, very narrow product sets in terms of their application to much more direct land and expand type opportunities. And so you have to be able to adjust to all of them. I know you're, you're talking more about the mistakes people make. I'm switching it into where the opportunity can be gleaned as well. This needs to be a positive, not just a negative conversation, Devin. 
Absolutely. I think uh, <laughs> if you start with a, bo- a negative, you can uh, get to the positive. So I'm glad you got us there. Going back to the frontline managers and trying to be super reps, I, I agree completely. I- I'm not a football guy. I'm a basketball guy. So if you look at some of the best players of all times or best reps, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, uh, very much known as some of the worst coaches of all time. And then simultaneously, the best coach of all time, not too arguably, is uh, Phil Jackson, who made it to the NBA but wasn't really, I don't know if he ever made the all-star team. I'm curious if being a top rep is always a prerequisite for you to put someone into management where someone might be not a top rep but really has what it takes to be that Phil Jackson-like mentor and manager. It's a really good point. Um, yeah, that Man, so here, here's my perspective on it. It would be very difficult for a rep you brought into an organization to be unsuccessful, yet still viewed as somebody who could come in and manage. That would be really tough if you're going that path. Now, I think the core skill of what would make somebody a good manager would be evident in the way that the person sells or interacts with their team or their approach to the business or the strategy or whatever the case may be. My background's in management and IT consulting. So when I came into sales, I came to it from a different perspective and while I still think it would be, have been very difficult for me to have moved into management within Newstar if I was not successful as an individual contributor, given that's where I came in, because my background was different, I could have seen the translation in that way. I think it's probably more likely that you have an individual contributor who maybe isn't successful and realizes that they're a better manager, take the skills and the lessons learned from the organization in which they weren't successful, and translate that into a managerial position somewhere else. It does not mean that you have to be a top performer in order to be a manager. It's, if you think about the dynamics of if Phil Jackson tried to coach the team that he was a very average player on, right. it would have been very difficult for the team at the time to have had any belief in his ability to serve as the coach. I like that differentiation a lot because I was thinking the same thing. If you've got 10 reps on a team and someone who's the third worst, but a great guy or gal, and everyone likes to hang out with and get advice from, it's going to be tough to get their buy-in uh, you know, next quarter when they're managing the team. So it's a great answer. Yeah, or when they, they're, they're pushing their team trying to set an expectation. They're like, well, you, we've seen you, you not do it. Do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so why, why should I listen to you? Right. Which is uh, notorious for salespeople, right? You know, where it comes to sales training, uh, you know, product marketing, ch- telling folks how to sell in position. It's always, uh, you know, look up their LinkedIn real quick. Have you sold before, uh, before taking advice? So can definitely relate. Right. right. Yep. Relying on a relatively small percentage of top performers makes it very difficult to sustain growth. One way to help ensure that you have a more balanced sales team is to identify and hire the right people to begin with. According to McKinsey, top performing sales organizations zero in on the intrinsic traits and behaviors associated with strong performance and then develop hiring plans to identify the right applicants. That said, a McKinsey survey titled Analysis of Sales DNA found that only 10% of new hires match the intrinsic profile of the top 20% of performers within their existing sales force. Even worse, 40% of new hires match the intrinsic profile of reps in the bottom 20%. That means that most new hires are actually more similar to the worst performers than they are to the rock stars that you actually want more of. Stay tuned to the micro action at the end of the episode for tips to help you identify and select future top performers.
So Dorian, I'm curious if your top performers have stayed consistent with this shift to virtual selling or if you've seen any changes in that because there are different skills required in the way that we sell today versus a year ago. Or is it too soon to tell? Because especially for longer sales cycles, like that's still it's, a process. It's not too soon to tell. Um, we ran a lot of analysis as soon as the pandemic started, uh, three months after the pandemic, um, and then more recently as we're doing 2021 planning. Initially, as you might expect, we saw a pretty dramatic shift in pipeline within new logos versus existing. Um, now, a lot of this is predicated on what verticals you're selling into, because in travel and hospitality, for example, there is no pipeline. Um, because those organizations are trying to just stay in business. Um, Newstar is unique in that we have a really robust client list. So we are afforded the opportunity to sell more to some of the top brands in the world. Um, in the absence of that, if we were solely dependent upon driving new logo, that would be very challenging in this environment. And I promise I'm coming to the answer to your question. So mm -hmm. initially, we saw a pretty dramatic shift out of new logo and into existing. The good news is we were able to do that. We actually saw, saw it shift back pretty much to the levels pre-pandemic because the world somewhat shut down and then said like, okay, wait a minute, we have to still conduct business. Um, so as it relates specifically to your question, I think one, um, you, you would have seen a more dramatic shift in performance and ability to perform if circumstances necessitated it. So our top performers have earned the trust of very large brands um, having successfully sold in the past. And so they're afforded the opportunity to, to, to continue selling going forward, even in a virtual environment. The challenge of trying to earn trust at the CMO or the chief risk officer or the chief information security officer or whomever that you've never met in person and for whom they already have an incumbent, that is extremely challenging. Um, and that's where I've seen the biggest shift. Um, there's a lot of components that you can do virtually. Um, and my experience has been, it just elongates a sales cycle. So whereas you might've been able to pull everybody together and come to a consensus. Now you're doing it piecemeal over zoom meetings over WebEx, what have you. Um, and it takes longer, but because you have the trust that has been forged over time, and because you've proven yourself in the, what you've sold to them previously, you are able to continue selling in a virtual environment. For those that don't have those relationships and have sold virtually, you have to focus much more so on the impact to the customer. And it's always important to focus on value and impact than capabilities and solution. Clients don't care what your solution's called, certainly. And they probably don't really even care what it does. I mean, they do, but not really. They care why it matters, what the impact is to their business. And I would say more so than salespeople trying to adjust to an virtual environment of needing to do things in an inside sales fashion, you need to be that much more laser focused on showing clients you understand their business and a, a, a ascribing value to what we do in what is most relevant to them in their environment today in order to legitimize and ensure that they will have those conversations with you at this point. That's great advice. The other thing that I've been hearing a lot is um, sales leaders recommending that their teams really double down on time to value. So it's the value and it's the time to value because that's even more of the essence um, in these times. So, right. so attributes like curiosity, competitiveness, uh, ability to overcome adversity are important indicators of success in sales. You, you hear it all the time. Do you believe, Dorian, that these traits are something people are born with? 
or are they something that can be developed with the right training? I, I think there are, it's, it's a mixed bag. Um, I get asked a lot, what are the attributes that make a good salesperson? And you know, there's a lot of cliche of, you know, it's work ethic, it's communication skill, it's drive, it's, you know, being able to overcome obstacles, being able to think on your feet. There, there are innate skills and there are learned skills. What I've learned, I think that's been most interesting to me, my assumption coming into sales was that everybody in sales is motivated to be the best because the harder you work, the more you get paid. Right. Uh, I've heard an expression before that I don't actually agree with, but it's, it's relevant. Sales is either a really difficult, high paying job or a really easy, low paying job. I, the reason I disagree with that is because if it's a really easy, low paying job, it's actually a job you're not going to have very much longer right. because it's also very easily measured and be, you're held accountable to it. To, to me, uh, the skills I think are developed are how to be an active listener, how to understand more critically the, the information that you're getting and then respond to it, how to translate what people are saying into the value and help them down the path. I think there's some nuances to all of that and you know, how you communicate and, and how you build that trust. That's an example of something that you can learn. You can definitely learn product um, capabilities and competitive differentiation and those sorts of things. You can also learn how one organization does it. If you're successful selling one company, you know that story well because you lived it and you just repeat it. Um, so those are the sorts of things that are learned. The things that I have not seen learned, natural sense of curiosity. People either want to understand or they don't. And for me, and it drives my team and my wife and my kids and my dog and everybody else nuts, I ask a lot of questions and I'm not asking the questions because I've been trained to. I'm not asking the questions because I'm, I expect somebody's going to ask me those questions. I legitimately want to understand because I'm in a better position to help prescribe the next step or to help our clients buy or to better qualify or whatever the case may be. If I understand the why behind the what. And so if you think about it, could you train a robot to sell? Yeah, you could train a robot to say, hello, my name is, and we have this. And the problem is, even if you train the robot to ask a question, if you ask the question and then naturally the client's going to respond to something back, they don't know the next question to ask. And that's the, the skill or really the lack of that I see within certain sales contributors in that they, they have been taught to ask a question because they know it's a component of the process, but they don't have that natural sense of curiosity to ask the next question and then the, it's really the questions that we don't ask that I worry about because it's a gap of information that we might otherwise have that accelerates the sales cycle or helps us qualify more effectively. Bill Gates is famous for saying the best salespeople he's ever seen get to the no the quickest. It's not about getting to the yes. It's just getting you an answer because otherwise you're wasting your time. Um, and if you're not asking this question sooner in the process, you're not able to take the steps uh, effectively to qualify sooner um, and make the determination of if this is a good use of your time and your client's time or not. Yeah, and it sounds like as I'm listening to you, there's kind of like a, a trifecta of sorts, which is you have to be naturally curious to want to ask questions and get to the why. But then you need to be an active listener to truly understand what's being said. And then the critical thinking comes in, which is internalizing that and going, okay, what's not just asking another question, but the best next question to really get deeper and deeper. In a perfect example of that, Devin, is this conversation. So I'm not sitting here 
waiting to ask you a question and I haven't actually heard what you just said. That's the definition of active listening. I'm listening to what you're saying because what I'm going to say is predicated on what you're telling me. And have you ever noticed the situations where people aren't interrupting, but they're like, they're starting to talk before the other person's done. That's because they're, they're, they're not listening to that person. They've right. already decided what they want to say. And you'll see it sometimes of you, you have to come in with a strategy, but then you have to be an athlete and adjust. Um, and to tie this back to the question you asked me in the beginning, what's another thing that you learn having played sports, use another funny expression since Mike Tyson just had a fight this past weekend, his famous expression of everybody has a plan to get punched in the face. Yeah. Well, everybody should have a plan of going into a conversation of what you think is going to resonate with the client or how this is going to be impactful for them or whatever. But if they change the, 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 the dynamic or the, the script on you, you can't just roll with what you were doing before. You have to adjust them. And I've been on sales calls before where we agreed this is the path we're going to take. And it's basically akin to the person saying that won't work to me. And the rep still rolls with it because it's like, well, that's what we agreed we were going to do. Mm -hmm. um, you, you have to be able to, when you actively listen and, and base your response on a natural sense of curiosity and what the person is telling you, it leads to a much different conversation. Absolutely. And I've had that happen uh, in my sales career where you, you know, you plan with Dorian, Dorian's in on the call. You say, Hey, Sheena, here's what we're going to cover. No, actually we're not going to do that today. We're going to do this instead. And your reaction is, Oh, crap, what should we talk about then? Like your internal monologue is what do we do? It sounds like the most curious, the best reps, the curious reps just go, okay, Sheena, well then what should we talk about today? You know, just flip it right mm -hmm. back on them and then, and then apply the active listening and critical thinking. Yep. That's, that's exactly right. So it's, it's one thing for a sales leader to kind of understand what's working for their top performing reps and help guide the rest of the team. What do you think is a responsibility of the top performing reps to help folk, other folks on their team? And how should they be doing that? Man, um, I, I try to lead an organization that's focused on camaraderie. And, you know, there's, there's, I think we have a team that wants to be successful individually and as a team. But at the end of the day, sales is very, is very much an individual sport, right? It's your, your goal in any given year is not for the team to succeed. It starts with you succeeding. You have an individual goal. You have individual targets. That's a challenging one because I got into sales because I wanted more direct control over my ability to earn. And so it, there's a natural juxtaposition of individual motivations and goal setting against the team. Now one begets the other, obviously, if I'm successful as an individual, the team is successful as a result. The good news is we have a lot of very smart seasoned salespeople and bu building a culture in an organization, building a team in, or in an organization is like DNA. So DNA is, you know, the, the, the double helix, it replicates itself. So if you have an A team, they hire A people. If you have a C team, they hire C people. It's just the way it works they're going to replicate in that way. And so if you bring in the right people in the organization that see value in learning from others, it starts to become a quid pro quo. And so then your top performers, they, they can learn from those that aren't performing as well, but are spending cycles and gaining insight from clients. And then they share the information back and forth because new reps or underperforming reps always want to spend time on calls with the high performing reps. Right. 
And high-performing reps don't want people on their calls. They don't want people involved in their deals. They don't want anybody touching anything. They, you know, it's, it's always that way. They're very superstitious. And now in a very seamless ma- manner, they can provide the insights and, and share that not just across their peer base, but with product and with account management and with the executive team. And you can start to define what it means to be a top rep, not just the output, but the process and the steps that are taken and begin to take a much more granular level view I think that promotes that sort of environment. Um, I know that was a really long-winded answer to your question, but um, it's difficult because you can't just say, hey, I want you top-performing top reps to help the lower-performing reps. We've tried player-coach roles. We've tried all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, you have, you're focusing on an individual goal because that's what's assigned to you. It's true. It seems like the the best advice that you have is – build that flywheel, like you hire the best and that attracts the best and you, you kind of keep try to do your best to keep that going. That's right. So we've talked a bit about your background and how it has helped set you up for success. You know, your, your athletic background, coming in as a consultant and then moving into leadership. I also read that you're, you have an interesting family background, that your mother is a professor of military strategy and she was the first woman to ever hold this type of position, which is quite amazing. So I'm curious, you know, now with workplace diversity even more important, especially in technology, how has that upbringing and your personal background shaped how you build a diverse team? It's, uh, it's funny. When I was at school um, and I would come back from games, um, if I ever did anything uh, in the game, the commentary wasn't Dorian Cass, like Here, here's why he's good, or Dorian Cass grew up in Virginia and is playing in California. It was always Dorian Cass, whose mother is a professor of military strategy at the National War College and the first woman to own that position. And so I'm very accustomed to my mom being far more interesting than me, and that's okay. Um, it, it's also um, growing up in a household of where, where your parents are involved in high levels of, of the government and military and interacting with high-ranking officials and those sorts of things. It, it, it also creates a different environment. My whole family's military, except for me. My military service was playing football in college. Um, but there's very much of that hierarchical environment and the respect and the work ethic that goes into it. But from a diversity standpoint, especially in the world we live in today, I've been very fortunate in that I've had a very strong female presence with my mom and, and obviously a, a male presence with my dad too, but somebody who is very much front and center um, and could take the attention and, and, and deservedly so. And so my perspective on, you know, workforce equality and diversity of thought and diversity of culture is very different than I think others. And then if you think about uh, the sport that I played where I was the minority, so my view on diversity and inclusion, which is really important for Newstar today, um, and we've developed the diversity and inclusion council and we have all these core values that we live by, it's very important to everything that we do as a company, even more so with everything that's taken place in the world events over the past six to 12 months. And so, yeah, I, it, this is hearkening back to my days in, in college where uh, there can be no conversation with me that doesn't involve some, some mention of my mother. So I'm, I'm glad we could uh, keep that trend going. Well, well, she raised you well, and, and she's always there <laughs> to remind you how, how you were raised. So, oh, don't worry. Like she was there at Thanksgiving <laughs> reminding me. Everything, <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Dorian, I could hang out with you all day, but I want to make sure you get some time back to make it to your next meeting. So we'll wrap up with our final question that we ask all of our revenue leaders, which is, how would you describe sales in one word? 
I only get one word. Well, the fun part is you get one word, but then you have as long as you want to describe why. What if there's, what if there's like a semicolon and a hyphen? I'll give you that... any grammatical assistance that you require. Okay, so I can make words up too? I would love that. Okay, I don't, that's asking a lot of me. <laughs> um, if I was going to use one word for sales, I think I would use, and this is making a comment in the middle of the fourth quarter, I would say grind. Because it's easy to focus on um, the big wins and uh, the money that gets made or the, the recognition or all of those other things. There's a, a lot that goes into it. And not just from the sales professional, from sales engineering, from product, from marketing, for sure. uh, for wherever. It is, a, it is a team sport. So if you'd given me two words, I would have said team sport. Um, since you only gave me one, I said grind. Um, but the, grind has a negative connotation to it, and I don't mean it negatively. Right. Um, what it means is in order to be successful, you have to constantly be improving. You have to constantly be working. You have to constantly be putting effort against something. Because um, to grind something is to make it into a different form. Um, and that doesn't come just by doing something in the past and then you're, you're okay. It takes a lot of willpower. It takes a lot of determination. It takes a lot of picking yourself up, back up and, and learning from your mistakes and, and growing accordingly. It's a good, a good kind of grind, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It, it definitely does. And of all the quarters, Q4 is a grind. And to your point on teamwork is, yeah, those big deals that maybe get shared in Slack or, you know, at all email there's, you know, managers behind the scenes putting proposals together, deal desk involved, sales engineers hustling and uh, and grinding on, on presentations. So yeah, I, I definitely know there's uh, it's kind of like they call it like the success iceberg, right? Everyone sees the top of, above the water, which is the big, uh, the big potential commission check or the ARR that's produced. But there's a lot, a lot going on behind mm-hmm. the scenes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, since I, I get to take over this part of the interview, what what's your guys' one word for defining sales? You are the first no, yes. person to flip it around on us, which is just absolutely shows your curiosity. I've yeah. actually had mine ready, Sheena, in case oh, this moment came. Wow. Okay. And it's actually similar to yours, Doran, but it's it's the word hustle. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like grind, but to me, hustle is something that you continue on. It's 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 ongoing because sales doesn't have, you know, an off season. And so yeah, it's kind of a uh, Taking your licks, taking your wins, and just keep on, keep on going. I love that one. Yeah, I I had not thought, even though I have had this conversation with fifty plus people now. Yeah. Um, but I think multi-dimensional, like something uh, along those lines. We're gonna need a rule. We're gonna need a rule on that. Got a flag on the play. Hyphens, come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> the hyphen was my idea. Right, multi-dimensional. We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. Tell uh, it, tell it. Yeah, because, you know, I have not come in with a sales background. And, you know, earlier in my career, it was like, oh, sales, it's like whatever, coin-operated standard stereotypes. But having gotten closer and closer to sales over my career, just seeing the complexity, you know, kind of what you talked about, like there's all these, there's so much cross-functional work, so much work that goes on behind the scenes. It's highly strategic. You need to have a lot of different skill sets that, like, anybody can't pick up the job and do it. It's highly complex, um, and it evolves and it changes over time, like as we've seen over the course of this year. So that that would be that would be my word, my hyphenated word. I like it. We should make one of those like word collages with with all of these things and start sending them out as you guys' infographic. 
You know That's what's funny idea. is we actually have one in in the works right now. We haven't published it, so we get to add yours. We get to add grind to it before we hit publish. Okay, that's good. I, I want to sneak peek at this before it goes out to the masses. <laughs> and then at the very bottom will be me and Sheen. I'd be like, only because Dorian asked. Here's what we think. If you guys, I feel can. like I feel like yours should be on the back. On the back, that's better. like on the yeah. the back of a digital infographic. If you can find that's that. right, yeah. <laughs> Page two. Dorian, thanks for hanging out with us. This was really a, a good time. I hope you enjoyed it, and I think there's a lot of good uh, takeaways for our audience. So thanks for popping by. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. For this week's micro action, we're going to talk about balance, something I think we can all use more of in 2021. Developing a solid hiring strategy is the first step toward building a more balanced sales organization. And one key to that is to identify the difference between innate skills, the skills you need to hire for, and learned skills, the skills you can actually train. Start by answering the following questions with your leadership team. Are we clear about the innate sales skills needed to succeed on our team? For example, you may want sellers that are highly curious and driven to understand the why behind the what. Next question to consider is, what's our method for identifying the candidates with those skills? And lastly, does our onboarding process focus on teaching new reps the remaining trainable skills, things like good communication and strategies for building trust? Or are we wasting time and resources trying to train for skills that are inherently innate? Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.